Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February 25th, and I have some bad news for most of you. He's back. I don't even need to mention his name. He's gearing up for war within his own party. There are more and more rumors. This from the Washington Post, the Jeff Bezos-owned newspaper in Washington, D.C., that uh, he might even be selling his businesses as he ramps up for for a potential 2024 presidential campaign. And he's got a speech, I think it's on Sunday at CPAC, in which, surprise, surprise, he's going to attack Joe Biden. So what to make of the return of Donald Trump? Uh, I have on the show today, um, not my words, but Donald Trump's uh, a third-rate Washington Post reporter. Uh, She's anything but third-rate, of course. Her name is Carol Lennig, and she is the co-author of A Very Stable Genius, the best-selling book about Donald Trump, uh, which today or this week is out in a new updated paperback uh, edition, A Very Stable Genius, test Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump's testing of America. Uh, Carol, um, are you a third-rate reporter? (laughs) Andrew, how nice of you to ask me for my own opinion on that. Um, You know, Donald Trump has called me um, a third rate. He also called my co-author, Phil Rucker, and I um, lowlifes. And after we did a series of other uh, reporting around this book, he's had a lot of unpleasant names for people who report on his presidency. We think we've been pretty serious and very, very deeply, deeply invested in researching this down to the core with a lot of care, corroborating our reporting and making sure that we accurately capture what this presidency was really like from the people that were inside the room with the president. Yeah, uh, Donald Trump also called Philip Rucker a total faker, such a faker he isn't even in this show. We will get Phil, I think, on another show. as I said, uh, Carol, the book, the, the 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 new edition, the paperback edition, has some updated sections. Most people watching will have already read your book. It was it was an immediate uh, number one best selling book last year. Uh, what is new about the book? You have a new introduction and and, and some new facts. You know, Andrew, when we um, put down the pen, so to speak, on a very stable genius. It was before one of the most consequential events of the presidency in 2019, and that was the so-called perfect call that President Trump made with the Ukraine president, Volodymyr Zelensky. 
it that call was was just the tip of the iceberg about President Trump's pressure campaign on Ukraine to get him something that he wanted that was valuable to him and his reelection. And that was the ability to crow that there was a criminal investigation or some sort of corruption investigation of his leading uh, sort of opposition for the presidency. And that was Joe Biden. Just an aside, it's very interesting to me that President Trump accurately described who predicted who would be his his challenger. Um, in those days, the reporting was that Biden was actually struggling as a Democratic candidate to be, to win the nomination. But the president was right. Um, Biden ended up being his challenger. So we put that pen down before this event, and we felt that it was really important to return to that moment. And again, explain to people what went on behind the scenes, what was the president really doing? And meanwhile, while he was engaged in this pressure campaign, what was going on with some um, folks in the administration, including a CIA officer, who wanted to sound an alarm about the president's efforts and believed that, that they were likely illegal? Uh, you begin the book, Carol, um quoting five words from uh, Donald Trump that he that he said on 2016, July 21, when he was accepting the Republican presidential nomination, I alone can fix it. Did he fix anything, Carol, in the four years he was president? It's hard to say fix um, with regard to President Trump, because really what was the dominant feature of this presidency was Donald Trump working to get reelected. Um, it was the ever-present elephant in every room. But isn't it that was, true of all politicians at all times in American politics? Absolutely. All presidents, except for a rare few, want to be reelected, and they work at that. Um, what Rahm Emanuel, Obama's first chief of staff, called putting points on the board. They do want to have successes in policy and in in dealing with and addressing their campaign supporters, making sure those people feel that they've been heard and that policies have changed in a way that's beneficial to them. What distinguished Donald Trump was that it didn't really matter very much to him whether or not the policies benefited anyone. What mattered to him was the news cycle. Did the news cycle claim and, and show, whether it was true or not, that he was addressing his, his campaign supporters' needs. And so sort of banging the gong about blocking immigration, banging the gong about building a border wall, um, getting television coverage about how supportive he was, about uh, evangelical concerns, religious liberties, those sort of optical moments were what were crucial to the president. Not so much long-term strategic planning, policy changes that made a difference. I will say there is one, one absolutely measurable, tangible success that President Trump had, and that was getting conservative judges on the federal bench at every level. There has never been a president who's had the success rate that he had, at least not in modern modern times. It's just been quite striking. But policy fixes, not very many of those. Uh, Carol, you end the book, uh, and, 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 and to me, the, obviously a very stable genius is the wonderful title of the book. We all know where that came from. But 
I really like the subtitle of the book, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America, because in some ways it's a book about America. Uh, and you end the book, which I'm not sure when you finished this version, but you say, uh, what date, when did you, I assume you, you, you wrote this in what, October 2020? Yes, and sadly, publishing requires so much more right, time yeah. to actually publish, as you know. Um, it's not like real time now. TV. Anyway, you, you, you. We you, end at the end of 2019, right? As 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 two teachers, you're saying, "Well, now the ball, kids, is in your court." The most, and you're writing before the election of uh, the most powerful nation in the world teetered on the precipice in November 2020 devastated by disease, depleted by recession, riven by racial upheaval, ravaged by the changing climate, debased by immorality, and weakened by an all-out assault on institutions. This was Trump's America. And at its heart stood a self-described genius, tearing down whatever stood in the way of his survival. The time had come for voters to decide. So the ball, as you and, and Phil suggest, was in uh, the court of the American voter. And as we know from the election, and as Donald Trump will no doubt remind us on Sat Sunday at his CPAC speech, and many times between now and 2024, 75 million Americans, I guess in, in, in your language, failed the test. Is that fair, Carol? I'm a reporter and I'm not a political operative or advocate. Um, but the what conclusion I is, is a polemic. I mean, you, you're, you're escaping your reporter's cape and you're taking a position at the end of the book. We take a position that the, the, the America that the President Trump delivered in November 2020 was not matching his description of making America great again. Uh, while I think a lot of voters really feel that he is their advocate, he's their fighter, he's their champion. They have a reason that they choose him. They're worried about immigration. Some of them may be actually quite concerned. Which, you know, a lot of Americans find just sickening. They really want um, that division between church and state. But let's put that aside. The America that, pre that President Trump delivered to us before November 2020 was not one that many people would describe as great. However, it was one where he was still banging that gong and saying that he alone could fix things. The problem was on coronavirus, on the economy, he failed to fix it. And many, many, many of his advisors tell us now, they know that's the reason he lost. That's the reason he didn't win the election. As for those who supported him, they have the same reason they voted for him in 2016. He defends what we care about. He fights for us. He's, he's shaking up the status quo. And I'm, I'm sure many of them didn't have a loved one that died alone in a hospital from COVID. So if that didn't touch them, Maybe it, it wasn't so personal and worrisome to them that he failed to fix this huge, huge plague upon our country. I, I'm pleased you brought up COVID. Another of the, the miserable headlines of this week is that America has entered the uncharted territory of 500,000 COVID-related deaths. You write in the book about COVID, about Trump's COVID. He said, 
You write, afraid of spooking the stock markets or impairing his re-election chances, Trump lied about the lethality of the virus. Do you think, Carol, he has blood on his hands, quite literally, with COVID, with the half a million deaths in this country? There is no question in my mind, nor in the mind of his advisors, who I actually think their opinion here is more important because they sat in the presidential daily brief meetings. They sat in for the coronavirus task force meetings. They got the classified and unclassified intelligence. It is, it is unquestionable to them that more people died in America because the president denied the seriousness of it at the very beginning and continued to frighten the 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 firmament of the US government and his advisors to take more sort of serious steps to cut it off at the pass in January February and again March through the summer denying it and and throwing up his hands that that he had any responsibility for addressing it there's no question more Americans died because of that uh, as you say, Carol, you're a, you, you and Phil are reporters rather than um, like Mary Trump, for example, psychologists. But you do make an attempt to interpret Donald Trump. Uh, you argue in the book that his ego, Trump's ego, prevented him from making sound, well-informed judgments. Um, is the problem with Trump that he suffered from a cult of his own personality, that he was so self-obsessed? So, as, as Mary Trump, I think, argued in her book, so, so cut off from the rest of the world, so, so, to, to, to borrow uh, some words from Mary Trump, that he had such a colossal and fragile ego that he couldn't actually deal with reality and he still can't. I'm glad you note that we are not psychologists, we're not doctors, and, and we did try to sort of stay away, essentially, from the issue of... Um, pretending we could diagnose his mental state in terms of his mental health. But I can say with, with great clarity and authority after all the reporting that Phil and I did, that it's clear the president had a blind spot about empathy for others. And so when terrible things were happening, the terrible things in his view were the things that were happening to him. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't throw a stone anywhere inside the White House and not find a person who had heard the president say, this is killing me. This is, you're, you're killing me. This event is, is such so hard on me and killing me. What he meant was this is killing me in the polls. This is killing me with my base. He rarely said this is killing Americans. Uh, and I think that that, that tells you a lot, just listening to the real-time expression of the president. When he is facing a crisis, it's a crisis against him. And that's really the only one that he is seeing day to day. Uh, Carol, one of the people you quote in your book is one of my favorite guests on my show, um, uh, Peter Weiner, the conservative moral philosopher in many ways. You quote him, you, uh, uh, you say, Weiner says he's a about Trump. He's a, he's a transgressive personality, so he likes to attack and destroy and unsettle people. As I said, we had Wayner on the show. He's quite a gentleman. Um, is there anything, and, 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 and Wayner's argument, of course, is that Trump is anything but a conservative. 
what do you make less of Trump's mental state and more of his political ideology? Is it essentially just Trump egoism? Or is there any political discourse there? And why are conservatives like Weiner, why have be, they been the most acute and I think effective moral critics of Trump? You know, there's another group of critics of Trump that are conservative Republicans, um, very much uh, in the same vein, I would say, as as Peter Weiner. That, that would be the Lincoln Project. You know, mm. a group of Republicans who banded together literally to write campaign style ads, sometimes two or three a day, um, savaging President Trump and pointing out that uh, not only were his announcements, pronouncements, executive orders, policy decisions, oppositional to Republican philosophy, but were really damaging and were often you know, a web of lies. There are a lot of conservative Republicans who are very troubled by what Donald Trump uh, wreaked uh, on the country and on the party. And I think one of the thing that, things that's most fascinating is watching, as you said at the beginning of the show, Andrew, you know what President Trump, the former President Trump now, will try to make of his future as a kingmaker, as a, as a force to be reckoned with in the Republican Party. The re reason Republicans all over Congress were so loath to, to dispute or question the president was the power of that base he hauled around behind him like a sack of toys. That, that group of supporters, they're, they're so mobilized for Donald Trump. And anybody who crosses him risks losing that group, or at least losing that group in their district. And um, that pull between the Republicans who care deeply about the philosophy of the party and those who want to keep their jobs and fear losing it if they cross Trump is just such an amazing friction and, and spells something pretty frightening for the party. Uh, another headline today uh, 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 in the Times is that uh, Mitt Romney predicts Trump would win the 2024 nomination if he, if he runs for president. Uh, Mitt Romney, of course, is anything but a friend or a supporter of Trump. Do you think that's true? Do you think that um, the majority of Republicans are still in the Trump camp in spite of everything, in spite of COVID, in spite of uh, January 6th, uh, in spite of uh, and the two impeachments? I think Mitt Romney has it dead on. Um, there's nobody else with that um, app, that stature in the party. Nobody else who's tapped that group the way he has. It, it's, I guess, a, a issue of om of omission or missing in action. There isn't another force to be reckoned with in that party at this stage. That doesn't mean there won't be, but I mean, we literally are, you know, two months after the election, so. Let's see what what the rest of 2021 has to bring. But you're so apocalyptic almost. You're so dark, like so many journalists about the Trump camp. Um, do you think the fact that so many people have remained loyal to Trump, does, is that in any way convincing you that there's more to them than sometimes is portrayed in the liberal media? You know, I have to say this is one of my favorite topics because um, I have often felt and, and many of again, our sources, the president's own advisors have said the same thing to us. I've often felt, as they do, that Trump is a symptom of, a, you know, something that was building towards a near civil war in our country. There, are, There is a large, large, large group 
uh, tens of millions strong in America, who feel essentially disenfranchised by what you'd call the political elite, by the parties, whether it be Democrat or Republican, largely Republican, in Washington. They don't feel they're being heard. They're also feeling economically threatened. I mean, this isn't a monolithic group. They have a lot of concerns. But this group is is latching onto Trump because he's selling what they want to buy. And Trump is an amazing, amazing megaphone huckster. You know, he's he's been able to tap into that disappointment, that disenfranchisement, that frustration, that feeling of vulnerability, and 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 bring everybody into his tent. But as a country, we really have to deal with a group of people who will reject, you know, science and facts, will reject um, what's right in front of our faces because they like what he has to say better. And that has to be addressed in our country because the most dramatic and damaging element of this four years of the presidency is the rejection of fact. Uh, the question about whether or not we all agree uh, about climate change actually impacting the planet, about um, coronavirus being spread by person to person, and masks being helpful in stopping it, scientifically proven to reduce the transmission. We, you know, we have to all agree on on those basic primary truths. Carol, you write in the introduction, you're quoting William Galston, who Bill Galston also been on the show recently. The country, you, you say, Galston says, the country is angry and divided and in a way I've never seen, um, suggesting it's on the brink of uh, civil war. Galston said the same thing when uh, he appeared on the show. You, of course, wrote this before the events of January the 6th. Uh, we had uh, Norm Eisen uh, also on the show. Uh, I know you're currently in the process probably of writing a, a book about the final year of, of Trump's um, Trump's presidency. Uh, but how does uh, the events of December 6th and the consequential Im impeachment trial, how does that change your take on the Trump presidency? I'd like to sort of echo the voices of people we've been interviewing uh, for the paper and also for the book, but I'll stick with those for the paper for now. January 6th was a, for many people who worked for Donald Trump, a sickening, sickening moment. Uh, they describe how difficult it was for them to have seen the president not only urge people who at the time were armed with um, pipes and gas masks and helmets and two-way radios prepared for war, egging those people on to go to the Capitol and stop the steal, stop the certification of the vote, make their voices heard. They were disgusted and worried about what the president was encouraging and fomenting, and then to see it actually unfold live on television, lawmakers scurrying for their lives, the vice president evacuated by his Secret Service detail uh, and slipped past a group of protesters in the nick of time to get to safety. Uh, and to watch, for those people to watch the president not step up as he himself watched it on television, 
to use his Twitter uh, megaphone to tell his supporters, stop, I don't want violence. He didn't do that quickly. And and that really made many of the people who work for him um, question whether they could come in the next day. And as you know from our reporting, many did quit that very day. Seems like to reverse, you know, whatever Trump says about other people, actually, I think is reflects on him when he called Philip Rucker, your co-author of the book, a, a total faker. He's the total faker, really, I think, when it comes down to it. My favorite image uh, is him standing outside St. John's Church uh, with the Bible, the ultimate photograph of a very stable genius or a very, a very big faker. Um, a total faker. What's your favorite image, Carol? What summarizes this bizarre four years? Uh, you can't have that photo outside the uh, the church, but there are lots of other, other images that we all remember. The church may be one of the most striking because it is President Trump forcibly clearing peaceful protesters, exercising their First Amendment rights to protest the murder of a black man at the hands of police uh, so that he can have a picture with himself with a Bible. Um, and of course- Which we all know he doesn't believe in. Which, which we all know he doesn't believe in. He, you know, he cannot cite any stories from the Bible. He says he wants to keep that private, but most people who know him say that he doesn't and hasn't read it. So there's that. But I think another image that is also very telling is the moment that President Trump returns from his own hospitalization for COVID, steps onto the balcony of the White House, and in a very orchestrated, prearranged dance, uh, takes off his mask triumphantly uh, as you know the shutters are clicking of his White House photographer and camera crews to capture you know his vanquishing of the virus. Um, again, the president is telegraphing to us that he is so tough and strong. Uh, meanwhile, you know, a person died every minute that day of coronavirus, people who were his his citizens and, and his responsibility. Meanwhile, Carol, uh, many people perhaps will remember Sarah Cooper and the absurdity of the 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 I was going to say the, the, the Cooper presidency, the, the Trump presidency. I know you're a day-to-day -day reporter uh, and writer, so it's hard for you to step back. But how do you think people are going to remember Trump in 25 or 50 years? Real historians. Um, is it just going to be a joke, uh, a sort of a, a, a historical take on Sarah Cooper? Or has he done long-term damage to the country? It's yet to be seen what the long, long-term damage is. And by that, I mean decades, not the next election cycle of four years. It's yet to be seen. But I think that as our subtitle of a very stable genius conveys, this presidency will endure in history, sadly, for all of the, of the bad things that happened, all of the failures, it will endure in large measure because of a pandemic that was downplayed and ignored. And it will endure because this was a president who was able to really shake the foundations of the country. Now he didn't break them, but he did a pretty good job testing and, and, and threatening them, you know, objective justice, 
So, America, so, you still believe you're an optimist. You still believe, in spite of the 75 million people voting for Trump, that America, America passed or is passing or will pass the Donald J, J. Trump test. I do. Well, it's nice to have an optimist, Carol, on, on the show. Um, your colleague uh, at the Wa Washington Post, Carlos Lozada, he's also been on the show. He wrote uh, another marvelous book, What Were We Thinking? A, a kind of intellectual history of the Trump era around books. Uh, your book, your new paperback, A Very Stable Genius, is a must-read, Carol. What other book, what other single book to you somehow captured the absurdity, inanity, evil of the Trump age? Apart from uh, Carlos's book, which is a great kind of meta version, a, a meta take on the Trump era. I love Carlos's book. Uh, it's, but I also just love everything he writes. You know, I have to give it up to um, a mentor, a, a Washington Post icon, and also a competitor, Bob Woodward. Um, he got inside the room of many very important moments with this president. And, you know, in his most recent version, he got to hear the president say it aloud what he was thinking in real time. Uh, I also have to say on a meta scale, I enjoyed the fact that one of the first conversations that Bob Woodward had with Donald Trump for his book was Donald Trump railing about a very stable genius and saying it was an unfair uh, portrait of him. Um, I enjoyed that the president was, um, you know, just it was on his mind. He was thinking about it and yeah. he uh, that was good to hear. But I do think Bob, I hope he called you third rate. I hope he accused you of being third rate <laughs> to Bob Woodward, did he? He basically insisted to Woodward that, you know, it was unfair to say that he didn't know key moments in U.S. history, that he knew all about what happened at Pearl Harbor, contrary to. Yeah, that was um, one of the big stories in the book, the Pearl Harbor thing. Yeah, he insisted to Woodward that he knew what happened. Of course, our sources said that when he was in Hawaii with Chief of Staff John Kelly, he was confused about the details of exactly what they were visiting and why this was important historically. It was important historically because it was one of the things that propelled that attack on Pearl Harbor, propelled us into the World War. Anyway, I, I find that Woodward's pieces, Bob has done such a good job uh, and and he was a an inspiration to me to get into book writing and and still he he's still delivering and still doing a great job. Wow, um, one of the things I'm going to ask you off air, Carol, is an introduction to Bob Woodward. We'll have to have him on the show, and I, I'm sure he will cite your book as the other best book of the age. As I said, the rumors are and they're official that you're planning a follow up to a very stable genius. Uh, so there'll be another book, uh, perhaps, what, later in the year or next year uh, on the final year. Is that fair, Carol? That's fair. We are working hard on it right now. And uh, it's true. It's been announced. We are writing a book about the final year of the presidency. Phil and I uh, really enjoyed doing the first book. I have to say it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And we were pretty wiped out after completing it. Um, as you may know, we published just before uh, and did several book interviews and appearances just before the coronavirus really took hold in our country. And we were not envisioning doing another book, uh, mostly out of exhaustion, need to, need to recover, we need to return to our full-time jobs. But as you know, as all of Americans know, as people around the globe know, 
that final year ended up being the most consequential. And, um, you know, it was just impossible not to finish this history and to tell it. And that's what we're in the course of doing now. And on top of everything else, Carol, you've got a new book coming out about the rise and fall of the Secret Service later this year. So I hope you'll come back on the show um, this year to talk about that. I'm not sure how central Donald Trump is in it, but I'm sure there'll be some good Trump stories. I want to thank you, congratulate you. I don't quite know how you do it. Three books in a year, plus a um, a day-to-day -day job and the top newspaper in the country writing about the most important stuff. Carol Lennig, co-author of A Very Stable Genius, real honor, and I look forward to having you back on the show very, very soon. Have a great, safe year, Carol. Thank you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.